In this episode of 9-2-Y Talks, New York Times bestselling author Malcolm Gladwell discusses his new book, Talking to Strangers, with Jelani Cobb. Upending our fundamental assumptions about trust and deception, Gladwell makes a fresh illuminating argument that our long-standing cultural assumptions about communication and familiarity are due for an update in 2019 and beyond. The conversation was recorded on September 27, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good evening. How are you all? Hey, Malcolm, how are you? <laughs> so, um, so it's an interesting thing. I was worried about this event. You know, I actually thought I was looking forward to it because we've had such a slow news week. <laughs> <laughs> There's been, like, nothing going on. And I was like, yeah, at least I'll have this thing on Friday. And um, I also was told I should start by saying that there will be a book giveaway at the end of this event for anyone who can dig up dirt on Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have those two announcements out of the way. Um, Good talk. Good to see you. Good to talk with you. We we have never met before this. Yeah. I think we said hi briefly at, like, a New Yorker party five years ago or something yeah. like that. Um, it's a pleasure. So I guess we can just kind of jump into it and say, why could it possibly be important to be able to discern whether someone's telling the truth right now? <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, that's one of the, you know, one of the puzzles that I'm interested in this mm-hmm. book, which is, uh, we should be good at that, and we're not. So you would think, evolutionarily, you would think that we would have been selected uh, based on our ability to tell whether people are lying, right? That was, it's such a crucial thing. You think that, but in fact, that is not what happened because we're terrible at, we're, as a group, we are terrible now. We are some people who are good at it. But, you know, uh, if I paraded 100 people across the stage, and each one of them, said a statement that was true or false, and I asked the audience to, uh, to pick the liars, their accuracy rate would be, your accuracy rate, would be at best 54%, like slightly better than chance, that's it, mm-hmm. which is really, 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 really puzzling. Um, and that's a kind of, that begins, that observation sort of, once you kind of take it seriously, uh, you know, I think it, it, it launches a whole kind of cascade of really interesting um, thoughts and mm-hmm. conclusions. I, I guess we would start out in the abstract saying, okay, someone may lie to me, someone may, um, you know, I had someone call me this week and I said, uh, I can't talk have the person making a request. I can't talk, I have to run into a meeting in five minutes, can I um, call you back? And so this person very, uh, I guess, strategically called me back 15 minutes later, but it was from a number I didn't know, and I was still in my office. Yeah. What are you doing answering your office phone? This Who is does this anymore? I, see, this is a problem. I have to just take the thing out, right? There's nothing yeah. good that comes from answering nothing, your office nothing phone. Nothing good has ever happened. Nothing good ever happens yeah. as a result of this. But I was like, apparently, seeming to have been caught in a lie. She was like, well, I thought you'd be gone to your meeting and I was going to leave a voicemail, but the real purpose of that call was to see if I was lying. Um, I was like, I'm on a video meeting, so. Oh, did you, t- you actually said that? Yeah. 
which wasn't true. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, so in the, in the, the lying literature is his own mm -hmm. fascinating little subsection of psychology. Mm -hmm. And so there's many, many debates about what a lie is. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, so Tim Levine, Levine the guy who, um, a, lot of, a lot of this book is based on his work. He's one of the sort of world's lying experts. And one of the things, when lying experts get together, one of the things they debate about is, okay, so how frequent are lies? Mm. And in, that depends on what you call a lie. So is what you told that woman a lie? And what Levine would say is, no, it's not really a lie. Mm -hmm. Because any untruth told um, to maintain the social fabric is really a kind of white lie and doesn't count. Mm -hmm. A lie is, what, is a deliberate and malicious attempt to misrepresent experience in order to profoundly you know, alter the perception of the person you're saying a lie. That's what a lie is, mm -hmm. right? You weren't doing that when you said, I have a meeting in five minutes. But what you were trying to do was very, you were trying to avoid having to say something that was disruptive, which was, I don't want to talk to you, right? Right. And I did have a meeting, which was just more than five minutes away. It was away. more than five yeah, minutes. Five. I think, I don't think Levine would call that a lie. Mm -hmm. He would say, so when you use this more restrictive definition of lying, you discover that very, very, very few people actually lie, mm -hmm. right? And those few hours, if you look at the total universe of lies, so if we cataloged the real lies told by everyone in this room, what we discovered, suppose we can't, everyone in this room wrote down all their statements for the last 24 hours, and we analyzed them about which ones are real lies. What we discover is there are three people in this room who lied, like, nonstop. Like, <laughs> we, would like, we would like those three people to raise their hands right now. <laughs> the, <laughs> the rest of you probably didn't lie much at all. Mm -hmm. And so that alters the odds. So then you realize, oh, the strategy of believing everything that people say is a sound one. So if you encounter, if you're unlucky enough to encounter one of those three liars in this room, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. But Iran's have encountered them very small. And, you, you know, they can't. Can they tell you a lie that actually destroys your life? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, uh, this is you know, Levine, this is Lord Levine's argument that evolution actually, there's no reason for evolution to have selected us to be good at telling lies because lies are told by such a small number of people mm -hmm. that you're actually, you're selected for your ability to believe in others because that's actually really efficient and adaptive. But it, the story doesn't end there though. You know, we kind of get into more uh, practical circumstances in which uh, what Levine calls the default to truth um, plays out in ways that become very complicated and have lots of other implications. Bernie Madoff, for instance. Yeah. Like, how does this really... Well, I would... You know, Bernie, Bernie Madoff is a good example of this. So, Bernie is a real liar. Like, a catastrophic liar. We, we, can, we can assume that, right? Um, and, but does Bernie... One interesting thing about Bernie Madoff is, so Bernie manages to pull off, think about his scam for a moment. His scam lasts 25 years, uh, roughly. Jeez. He manages to bilk people around the world of whatever it was, 15, 20 billion dollars. Um, he doesn't actually get caught, he turns himself in. Mm -hmm. So absent the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, Bernie could still be going strong today. In fact, if Bernie had found a way to kind of bridge that, the market quickly recovered, Bernie, Bernie would be going crazy right now, right? Like, I mean, really wow. doing well. 
So, but the question is, does Bernie, does the, so point number one is there's very few Bernies. Mm -hmm. There's only one Bernie. There's not a, it turns out there's not like a hundred of these people. So the scam looks like it's really easy to pull off. You have to look relatively distinguished. You have to have a large number of rich friends. And you have to be able to say with a certain degree of credibility, you know, I am an extraordinary investor. How hard is that? You and I could do this. I mean, we don't have a lot of rich friends, but like. So after the, the uh, event tonight, we will be launching the firm. <laughs> That's right. Gladwell and Cobb. <laughs> Gladwell and So it's not, but it's not that hard, but in fact, there's only one, mm -hmm. there's only one guy who does it on a massive scale. And does Bernie destroy the financial system in the United States? No, everyone, most of the people who invested with Bernie got a lot, got, they got a surprising amount of their money back. Life went on. So the strategy, I had to tell a story in the book of uh, this Renaissance Capital, the greatest hedge fund of all time. They, they find themselves with a stake in a Madoff fund before he's busted. And they have this internal communication in which they send emails back and forth. And when they're like, they don't believe that Madoff is for real because these guys are the smartest guys on earth. And they're like, this doesn't make sense. Bernie, you know, all these red flags. But they're like, yeah. And they don't sell the stake. So like, this is a group of people who have this default to truth. They're like sitting and they're all in, in like Long Island somewhere. They all have like yachts and private planes. They've made billions of dollars. Why have they made billions of dollars? Because they don't spend a lot of time worrying about whether their counterparties are frauds. They just assume everyone's honest. Turns out that's a really good way to make a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? The people who are sitting in their home like so paranoid that their money is under a mattress, those people don't make any money, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's weirdly adaptive. To be taken in by Madoff is, you know, if it's a sign that you are someone who's generally trusting, mm -hmm. it's probably a positive thing. So, okay, let me, let me push back on that a little bit, on the, on the opposite side of that. Mm -hmm. We have lots of institutionalized dishonesty and things that we wouldn't necessarily call outright lies. But lots of what was happening on Wall Street was certainly deceptive. Where people were packaging uh, financial products in such a way as to make it appear that you were buying sirloin, you were actually buying dog food. Yeah. Uh, and so, doesn't that count, uh, the widespread nature of that? Doesn't yeah. that count as a kind of I dishonesty that people are, are invested in, yeah. literally invested in? I would actually disagree. I've always thought the striking thing about, let's just confine our conversation to America for a moment. Mm -hmm. The striking thing about American, um, uh, the institution, malicious actions by American institutions, what's striking about them is their absence of dishonesty. So the, the weird thing about this country is that no one bothers to hide the nasty thing they're doing. So, True, agreed. <laughs> you know, in, <laughs> let me give you an example. In North Carolina, they engage in like unbelievable acts of gerrymandering in order to minimize the impact of Democratic or African-American voting. Mm -hmm. Do they hide it? Not even, they don't even, try, they don't even bother. They can't be bothered to hide it. They're like so, it's so open and on the surface. All you have to do, I mean, what's amazing when you follow that particular case, for example, is that it sounds, when you look at the people who are uncovering it, it sounds like they like, turn to page two. Right. Like, oh, there's massive Germany. Like, it wasn't even, 
I remember I did a piece years ago about the guy who broke the Enron story, mm-hmm. right? The, guy, the Enron story was broken by a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and I am terribly embarrassed to say I've forgotten his name, which is embarrassing, you know. But anyway, but it's really brilliant, intrepid reporter. How does he break the Enron story? The answer is he reads their annual report. Wow. <laughs> like, so in the earlier, in Woodward and Bernstein, they get like Mark Felt and right. Deep Throat and like people's right, secret right. sources and they meet and like, no, this guy, I actually, so I sat down and was like, how did you make the story? He goes, well, I started to read the 10 Qs and the 10 Ks and the annual reports. And then he's like, I didn't really understand them. So I called up Enron and Enron flew. He was in Dallas. Enron was in Houston. Enron flew a team down to Dallas to meet with him. And they sat in a room and he was like, they explained everything to me. And so he wrote it up, and that was the story that brought down Enron. It came from Enron. So, like, this is why I've never understood everyone, like, and so Jeff Skilling went to jail for 20 years, and Jeff Skilling still can't, he was the CEO of Enron. He still, if you check in with him from time to time, not personally, but if you look up with him, he still can't figure out why he's in jail, because from his perspective, he's like, you know, I may have been running this scam, but I told everyone. Told I, everyone. <laughs> like, I, didn't, I thought, and everyone pretended like you hid it from us. It's like, no, I actually didn't hide it from you. <laughs> right. It's in, it's all here it is, on page 56. It's, I told you what I was doing. So I think this is the modern, there's just no, no one's lying anymore. Like that's so 19th century. Today, it's all on the surface. Just, and I, I, I will even, and I have made a, I've tried not to talk about mm-hmm. the T word. But what's always striking about him is it's the same thing. He tells you exactly what's on his mind. Mm-hmm. I, people call him deceptive. That's not deception. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of weirdly like narcissistic transparency. I don't, I don't think you should be that hard on Clarence Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, can I? This is totally parenthetical, but I had the most interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. I know there's a book out now which kind of re-examines his mm-hmm. legacy. But when I was doing my revisionist history podcast on, uh, on the LSAT, mm-hmm. I talked to this judge called Jeffrey Sutton, mm-hmm. who was a Supreme Court clerk of Scalia's, and then and now is a very, very, very well-known, prominent federal judge, was a, is on the shortlist for the Supreme Court. And in the course of our conversation, he had this really interesting Clarence Thomas take mm-hmm which was as follows. He was like, because we were talking about clerks. And he was like, because the clerks are, the clerks you bring into the Supreme Court are the kind of, that's how, <clears throat> you know, that's the generation of, next generation of legal whatever. He's like, everyone on the Supreme Court hires their clerks from Harvard and Law and, and Yale and all those prominent law firms, except for Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. who hires his clerks from basically smaller law schools in the middle of the country. And then if you look at where law clerks go, everyone else's law clerks go to the coast to prominent firms or to fancy jobs. Clarence Thomas's clerks all go and take jobs, generally take jobs in the state judiciaries around the country. Mm-hmm. State, um, uh, you know, they become attorney generals of <laughs> states in the south, or they become. And he was like, if you think about this from Clarence Thomas's perspective, he is actually, he's the one building this extraordinary power base. He's populating, because this guy's whole theory is that state courts are way more powerful than we think. Mm-hmm. We, we forget how important they are in shaping policy. 
Clarence Thomas is peopling the state legal systems of the middle part of the United States with all of his wow. clerks. He was like, he's playing a long game that no one is, mm -hmm. is understanding, which I thought was really interesting that if you, so if you look at him from the perspective of other justices, you miss what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's just playing a different game. Right. He's thinking 10 and 20 years out. Yeah, I mean, I could believe that. And I think that it's interesting. To your, to your point about the lies and, and deception, um, I think it's interesting that one of the things I've noticed in reporting is that the lower you go on the food chain, the less elegant the attempts to deceive you are. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of North Carolina, uh, when I was there and all the gerrymandering things were happening and I was um, going around the state with Reverend William Barber for this uh, piece that I was working on, and I'm talking to uh, some of the people who are around dealing with kind of voter suppression stuff. And uh, this woman relays this story. I just spoken to this person who was like a state rep or something. And this woman relays this story about him. Uh, she was like, yeah, well, you know, he's a straight shooter. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And she said, I accused him of trying to suppress black people's votes. And he very indignantly replied, we don't suppress your votes because you're black. We suppress your votes because you vote for Democrats. <laughs> my point. And I was just like, well, I, I don't, there's really not much to say after that. Yeah. <laughs> so like, oh, all right, well, here we are. Yeah. Um, so, so this is, but this, this is actually really interesting. I think, I, I find that, I think this is a, a relatively recent shift in the nature of kind of malfeasance. Mm -hmm. So the earlier model, when you're in a, when you're in the 19th century, where information is scarce, the way you deceive is by hiding information, mm -hmm. right? So you don't know what's going on because I have taken this crucial fact and I haven't disclosed it, I've hid it on a rock, whatever. We're now in the opposite kind of world, in a world where information is everywhere, right? When, it, when you're in an information-rich environment, the way you hide secrets is in plain sight. Mm -hmm. You just, it, you know, this is the Enron case. The thing about Enron was, yes, they had it all. They told you, they, yes, they were disclosing everything, but their, their, you know, their quarterly report was this big. Mm -hmm. And it was in, it was in unbelievably dense language and you had to read the footnotes and you had to be, you had to know your accounting. You couldn't be like an average Joe. That's a very, a very modern way. And that seems to me what's going on with this sort of gerrymandering. They're just like, you know, we'll hide it in plain sight and you need to be diligent and do your homework. But it's not like, it's not like we're lying or we're saying X and it's actually Y. It's like, no, mm -hmm. it's what we're up to. So I think, I wonder about this though, like one of the other things to avoid the, um, the T person, um, and not Clarence Thomas, but <laughs> one of the things I guess I think that's striking um, about that phenomenon Mm. was the extent to which this person is voluminously deceptive. Just a prolific liar, mm -hmm. but is perceived as scrupulously honest by a particular block of the American public. Yeah. Uh, and it's not that, I mean, and some of the things are not subject to political spin. There is a video of him saying that he has no relationship whatsoever to Vladimir Putin. There's an earlier video of him saying that Vladimir Putin is a friend. Mm -hmm. 
one of those things is not true. Yeah. And so it seems that in addition to this, there is actually a kind of, uh, a, a kind of partnering in this act of deception that people will believe what they want to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, when Donald Trump is accused of being a liar, people say that this is, you know, spin. Or you can go to the Washington Post fact checker page, you can go to any of the kind of page, pages where there's an actual index, a running index of the number of lies that he's told. Mm -hmm. People will say they think he's honest. Yeah. Well, he's, maybe what they mean when they say he's honest is they believe that he's authentic. Mm -hmm. So that he may believe the thing that he's saying at the moment that he says it, mm -hmm. which is slightly different. But he, I would say that he's very transactional in his relationship to the truth. So he's very, you know, he's a real estate developer. Now, I don't mean to, I'm not harshing on real estate developers. Mm -hmm. But if you think of the nature of that world, um, there are some businesses where you profit. The route to business success is by having a set of stable relationships that continue over a long period of time, where, it is, where you are incentivized to be a good faith actor, to be open and honest and transparent and to be. But in that world, I had someone in real estate explain this to me. In that world, you, it's deal related. You do a deal and then you start over again. And this friend of mine was explaining, he's like, if you look at the history of real estate deals in, in a particular market, what you will see is that very often in deal A that happened in 2001, this person totally screwed over this person. And then you go, you go three years ahead and they, they'll do another deal together. Mm -hmm. they're, like, they're fine with it. It's like you're in that business because you have no memory and because you think that, <laughs> and you have to have no memory, right? Because here's the thing, the other crazy thing, this is also part of the, the gen, this is my real estate theory of <laughs> Donald Trump. What is the real estate world? The real estate world is we know with absolute certainty that it looks like this, right? Mm -hmm. It's like gyrates wildly in according to some unknown cycle. So it is absolutely the case that if you continue to build buildings over a long period of time, there is going to come a point when you're going to build a building and the market's going to collapse and you're going to be left holding the bag. So given that reality, why do real estate developers keep building buildings because they have no memory. Mm. It's very useful. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't be someone who has a memory of the last downturn when you were left holding the bag and went bankrupt mm -hmm. and, and persist in this business. So what is Trump? He's a guy who keeps, he keeps um, uh, going bankrupt and then he just goes back for more. And people keep spending money, uh, giving him money. And why? Because they don't have memories either. Mm -hmm. The whole world in that world, in that universe, has no memory. Mm -hmm. They're like, we don't care about what happened three years ago. So I think this, when it comes to his lies, it's like, to him, if he said it two months ago, it's no longer, doesn't matter anymore. That was two months ago. I'm on a new deal now. <laughs> and we get to make it up all over again. I honestly think so, that's the way he operates. So what you're saying is that in 2016, people didn't so much vote as they purchased a waterfront property. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Sight, sight unseen. They did, and then they, in 2017, they like flipped that for 2017 Trump, and then, I mean, I do think there is this, and I think we perceive in that world where you are constantly reinventing yourself with each new deal, mm -hmm. he gets really good at, at, um, at uh, uh, communicating his kind of enthusiasm for the truth of the moment, mm -hmm. which is what he's, 
And then that's what people are responding to. In the moment, it seems it's true. This is what he believes right now. Right? I mean, I think that's terrifying. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I have a kind of ambient terror that exists at this point. It's become almost like background noise. Um, but there's another thing that I'm curious about in terms of this idea of truth. And one of the things I was thinking about in, in the book, which is that we are pretty bad at discerning when someone's trying to deceive us. Uh, and you give some startling examples, especially about the CIA uh, and you know, in, in Cuba and in East Berlin and just kind of like time and time again where there are things that these really well-trained, uh, rigorously uh, educated, experienced people make these mistakes that seem to be inscrutable. But in other circumstances, I wonder, like specifically with Madoff um, and with, with the situation in Penn State with Jerry Sandusky, if what role self-interest plays in it, uh, or the old adage, uh, it's hard to get someone to uh, learn something, if, it's hard to get someone to understand something if their paycheck depends on them not understanding it. Yeah. Uh, and so, some of these people are not operating in good faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that part of this, how does that fit into this, yeah. this part of the story? So I think, you know, if you think about some of these classic cases that I talk about in the book, and you mentioned the Penn State one, mm -hmm. and I also talk about the, the Michigan State one, right. which I think, by the way, they're very, very different cases, <clears throat> but there are versions of the same thing. A pedophile is operating in an institution for a long period of time, and it takes the system Years and years and years and years to catch up with the pedophile. And the question is why. Um, I think that there are a kind of obviously a, a constellation of reasons why a pedophile would persist for a long time. In the case of Penn State, I am, I am inclined when it comes to the leadership, I am inclined to be generous in my interpretation of their motives. Because I honestly don't believe that it's in anyone's interest, or at least in that case, I find it very, very hard to believe that they would have an interest in, caring, in covering up Sandusky's crimes. The issue there was the person who was making the accusation against Sandusky was not actually making a clear accusation against Sandusky. He was saying something that was really, really complicated and hard to understand and vague. Why? Because pedophilia is something that is in some cases, really hard to understand and explain and difficult to... So I think those, there was something very human in the failure of Penn State to kind of properly respond to um, Sandusky's, uh, the allegations against Sandusky. I'm not so sure about Michigan State. Michigan State's very different. Michigan State is, you have countless people coming forward, particularly the girls. He's, abusing, coming forward and telling their parents and telling people. I think there's 14 documented instances of people coming forward with credible accusations against Nasser over the course of how many years, and Nasser continues to practice. In Sandusky, remember, there's none of that. Mm -hmm. He's investigated once and cleared, and then there's this other really, really vague thing that um, Michael McCurry comes forth, forth with. So they're really sort of separate, but I think it's important, I do think it's important to have for us to have in our kind of arsenal of explanations for inexplicable behavior. One that is not um, 
uh, punitive and judgmental. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't, every time something goes wrong in society, is, it, is, it is entirely unfair to say that when something goes wrong in society, it's because somebody was negligent or self-interested or, um, uh, uh, or criminal in their response. I don't think you that know? in general. I, mean, I just think that about the things that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. No, but I think, but I do think, you know, that is part of it. It's very hard for us to look at a case where a pedophile has been operating <clears throat> for many, many years and not want to, you know, once we have convicted the pedophile and not want to keep going and, and you, know, uh, you know, pull down the whole, um, uh, the, the, you know, the whole structure, you know, what's the word? It's the, it's the Samson effect, yes. Uh, pull down the but, whole temple. Okay, so how do we, okay, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's more. Like, we have a set of circumstances where people fairly predictably default to disbelief as opposed to defaulting to truth, where we find someone, typically a person who is a victim of a very powerful person, and we don't believe them, especially around things like sexual assault, especially around things like uh, child molestation and pedophilia. We have kind of layers of disbelief that has been associated with, you name them, Bill Cosby, uh, or certainly for very many years, Harvey Weinstein, or the, the more prolific wrongdoers. We have a default, I think it's safe to say, in society where someone ha- says, this happened to me, and we go, eh, eh. Yeah. what's your angle? You know, what are you trying to sell me? Yeah. Well, the, so this is actually consistent with, um, with default to truth theory, which mm-hmm. is that, so what Levine would say is this, that what we're doing when we def- default to truth is we're picking the most statistically likely interpretation of the behavior. So you are inclined towards the status quo if the status quo is the one that seems most plausible. So think about it. You have... Bill Cosby, let's use Bill Cosby as a good mm-hmm. example. It's a classic case of this. Mm-hmm. So you have people coming forward over the course of many years with allegations against Bill Cosby. So, and society, all of us mm-hmm. in some ways, if we hear about those allegations, and some, in some cases we didn't hear about them, but, some, but if we did, we, are, we, we have two alternatives. One is that this guy who's like America's dad, who seems like the very picture of, you know, of virtue and is accused of something that's so weird mm-hmm. of drugging young women. I mean, and, and we sort of say, well, what is the likeliest interpretation of this? Well, the likeliest interpretation of this is that these are some kind of, this is some kind of, you know, weird and weird made up or exaggerate or something, and, the, and that Bill Cosby is who we think he is. He's spent 20 years in the public eye establishing his reputation as this kind of father figure. So what Levine would say is, it takes a long time for those allegations to rise to the level that pushes us out of our support for the kind of statistical status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense. So you're right. You have two, when you're evaluating, in many of these cases, you are evaluating two allegations one is in support of the statistical status quo, and one is, at the very beginning, seems like a real stretch. And your inclination is always going to be to support the one that is statistically most likely until the others 
rise to the level of, like with Weinstein. So I think I would be remiss in like all of my um, my uh, kind of mentors would would cuss me out if I didn't point out that the idea of the statistical status quo being that the men were falsely accused is kind of the exact point that I think that people have been raising about this, that yeah. if someone's going to accuse you of rape, they're not likely to be lying about it, or no more likely to be lying about it than if they accuse you of mugging them mm. uh, or assaulting them or whatever, and the things that we kind of give afford more credibility to those kinds of accusers. No, I, so I think you're absolutely right. I would agree with you that the, st the, the concept of the statistical status quo is itself something that we construct, mm -hmm. it's not rationally <coughs> constructed, it's constructed out of our biases and our prejudices and our previous, so it's like a, I mean, uh, a, the, so we are, you get the kind of default to truth that your society creates. So we had for many years a society which was inclined to believe men over women in this instance. So that when we were confronted with these kinds of cases, that's where we went, right? We were mm -hmm. drawing on, years of experience with how we handled these cases in the past. It took, if you look at the kind of, Cosby's a good example. Those allegations about Cosby are out there for I don't know how many years. Um, yeah, a lot of years. A lot, yeah. lot of years. Yeah. And in that period, there is, it's, we're basically probably talking about 15 years where we kind of are, are slowly and Many people, people like Gloria Allred, people like all these people, are very slowly and carefully trying to turn our, um, our whatever kind of engine we have of this, of how we construct our sense of what the statistical status quo is. They're trying to alter it and say, actually, these things are more credible. Actually, there's more cases than you think of. They're trying to get it up to that level where we readjust our sense of what is, what is a believable accusation. That's not something that can be done overnight. Um, the Me Too movement is the beneficiary of that long process of reconfiguration. I suspect that um, in, when it comes to child molestation, it's going to take a little longer. Mm. Um, but they're also, um, so I think, but yeah, so I would agree. This is a subjective process, necessarily a subjective process. And, you know, there are tons of cases where, where we add race into the equation. And there you see that even more starkly, right? Um, sure. But it's still... You know, you still have to come to terms with the fact that people have constructed this subjective statistical status quo, right? You can't, that's, that's the way human psychology works. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that's what I'm trying to describe in this book is what is the mechanism for disbelief of these kinds of, of, uh, of, of allegations? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what, Levine, what Levine would say is that's what's going on. So I think it's interesting because in the, the kind of through line of your work, there's always this kind of relationship of, um, you know, social psychology and in a broader sense, social science and its applicability to journalism, which is something I've always been fascinated by myself. I've been interested in these questions of history. And, you know, I think I try to have my work somewhere at the intersection of my understanding the world as a historian and my understanding the world as a journalist. I think, are there ever points when you're doing your work, and you know, this is one of the things I think that people who kind of deal with studies and you know, controlled experiments and these kinds of things and come back, and it's just too muddled for you actually to say, like, I can't see where this is going. Or like, what are the frustrations of approaching the work, the kind of, the work in the kind of way that you do? 
Yeah. Uh, well, there is the frustration in, not frustration, but it is a fact of social science that, um, unlike history, like history, although in a different way, that the conclusions of social science are in constant evolution. Mm -hmm. So you, you may favor one particular approach one day, and then you wake up and the world has altered its, so in my, even in my own work, you know, in Tipping Point, I had a kind of approach to understanding the drop in crime in New York, and I was quite enamored at the time, as were many people, with, uh, with the broken windows idea, mm -hmm. right? In subsequent books, I have abandoned that entirely, and now my, in this current book, for example, a lot of my focus is on the consequences of that kind of, you know, and how the, and how the dangers of that kind of approach to fighting crime far outweigh the benefits. Mm -hmm. um, that is a function both of my own evolution in understanding this issue, but more broadly of social sciences evolution. In 1999, we honestly didn't know why the crime, why crime had dropped in New York. Mm -hmm. We had no, we had really, really vague guesses. We still don't really know, but now we're kind of getting, we're probably a lot smarter about it. But you, so if you are a, someone writing about crime in New York, as I have in almost every one of my books, over the period 1999 to 2019, you're gonna show, you're gonna have to be contradicting yourself, right? Because you, the science has moved so kind of dramatically and the kinds of things that we think about, like I always remember in the, uh, in the there's a Tracy Chapman song, <laughs> uh, which is the one about um, Through the Wall, you know that song, Through the Wall? Okay, I don't know that song. She might not be. <laughs> she has a song which is written in the 1990s, I believe, or the early aughts, which is all about hearing a couple. Okay, I a woman, remember. Keep going, being, it's coming back. A woman being abused through the wall, right? Uh -huh. And she has a line about how it's pointless to call the cops because they'll come really late if they come at all. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh, that song would never be written today. Mm -hmm. That song is about the 1990s. The paradigm of policing in the 1990s was the cops were absent, right? The paradigm of policing in that neighborhood in 2019 is the cops are omnipresent, right? right? And it reminds you, the world changed dramatically. And we weren't thinking about, back then we were thinking about what are the consequences of not having cops around? Mm -hmm. Now we think about, oh my God, what are the cop consequences of having cops everywhere? Right. right. It's a whole different set of, like, and that, I've, that song is so interesting because you, if you hear it every now and again, as you, if you listen to the radio, you'll hear it and you're like, you're like, it's totally puzzling. There is not a single black artist who would write a song called Behind the Wall today. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting, too, because of the kind of switching genres, like hip hop is mostly talking about the omnipresence of police and what happens in the nature of policing. And then if you kind of think about the broken windows approach to it, I talked to George Kelling not long before he passed away, actually. And um, he had a really interesting kind of reflection on the way broken windows had been uh, understood in saying that he was like, people underestimated the extent to which he was talking about literal broken windows. He said, I, I wanted people to approach code enforcement in communities and saying like, oh, there's a broken window here. We're going to write you a ticket unless you put a new window in this, um, in this frame. Or there's trash in this community. We're going to write you a ticket. And, you know, the extent to which people wanted to change the environment. Uh, and he lamented, I think, that people took 
the policing part of it. We said you needed to have police visible and as a presence and so on. And that was the part that everyone ran with and then the other part of it just kind of faded. Yeah, it wasn't a metaphor for him. Yeah, it wasn't a metaphor. Yeah, him. yeah. He was super, because he's the guy who did, uh, one of the studies I talk about in my book, the, he mm -hmm. did the original, Kansas, the famous first right. Kansas mm -hmm. City study, which influenced a generation of, uh, this is a study where, I should explain that, done in this, he, it was called the Kansas City Patrol Study. Mm -hmm. It was done in the 70s in Kansas City and by Kelling. And it was, they decided to see what would happen if they doubled, I think, the size of a police patrol in a crime-ridden neighborhood. And they did a controlled experiment. And what they discovered was it made no difference if mm -hmm. you doubled the number of cops. And this took the wind out of the sail of American policing for 25 years. It's why Tracy Chapman writes the song behind the wall. The cops have given up. They're like, well, what's the point? Like, we can't prevent crime. We, you know, there's nothing we can do. And they, it was a famous, I don't know if I remember if I quoted it, but there's this incredible, in retrospect, uh, interview given by the, the head of the NYPD in the early 90s. It was a guy named Lee, and I've forgotten his last name. Some people will remember. Who was Lee Brown. And Lee Brown actually, Lee Brown is a serious intellectual. He went on, he had a PhD, he went on to become, I think, mayor of San Diego or something like that. Or, I mean, he had a real public service career. He gives a job, a, an interview to the Harvard Business Review in like 1993, which is extraordinary to read, where he basically says, don't, you know, crime is out of control in New York. Don't look at me. I'm just wow. the head of the NYPD. We can't do anything about it. Go and talk to your, you know, social service people or your principals who are letting kids out on the street. I mean, wow. it was literally, it was like he, he was Pontius Pilate washing <laughs> right. his hands right. and saying, I had nothing to do with it. I'm just right. running the NYPD. Like the idea. I'm just here. I'm just here, right? right? I mean, he wasn't being cynical. He was mm -hmm. like, he literally didn't think the cops could make a difference. Wow. And then, you know, fast forward, of course, to today, and it's the exact opposite. They have this notion that they can do everything in terms of bringing crime under control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it, that I think segues into the, the other part of the book, um, which is framed, bracketed really by understanding uh, the interaction between uh, police officer Brian Insinia and a black motorist, a uh, black female motorist by the name of Sandra Bland, uh, and what happens in 2015 when Insinia pulls her over and as a consequence, uh, of their interaction, she winds up uh, arrested and is found dead in her cell three days later. Uh, and I think it's like kind of like, what does, what role does our inability to talk to strangers or the kind of inscrutability of interacting with other human beings play in that interaction? Because she's, so her, the fact that she was pulled over and she's pulled over for, the cop drives up behind her and she moves over to get out of the way and doesn't use her turning signal. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason. So it's a completely trumped up reason for mm -hmm. pulling her over. And she, um, she's pulled over because, not because she is behaving suspiciously, suspiciously in a high crime area. She's in a sleepy Texas town. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. She's pulled over because she's got out of state plates. She's a black woman young black woman, and she's driving a Hyundai, mm -hmm. right? That's the reason. Um, and that is, so we have a situation where the, this, the, in all likelihood, this is 
going to be a false positive, right? She, you know, he's pulling her over because he thinks that maybe there's some chance that she has, she's guilty of some, she's harboring a gun or drugs mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Brian Insinia's history, he's the cop in this case, his entire career as a police officer was about pulling people over for no particular reason in the hopes that he would find something serious. And he never does, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. he, I mean, he literally has, he has hundreds of police stops in his nine months as a cop, and he basically finds something serious, I think, two or three times. I mean, it's wow. an incredible record of futility. So he's running around. It's actually a record of diligence. Of dil but I mean. <laughs> like, I'm going to keep at this. It doesn't appear to be working, but I'm going to keep. But he's doing what he's, this is modern policing, right? right? This is the theory of, he is doing exactly what he is trained to do. He was instructed to go out into, you know, Southeast Texas and stop everyone who even was remotely raised a red flag mm -hmm. and just find out whether they're up to no good. And so that puts enormous pressure on his abilities to read a stranger, right? Because he's, he's stopping her because he has already, he's already got, mm -hmm. he's already formulated a delusional fantasy that she might be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so he, goes up to the window, and she's not even remotely dangerous. She just come from a job interview at Purview, Tech, at Purview University. Mm -hmm. And he, but he approaches her in this, with this notion of, oh my God, what if she's up to no good, blah, 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 and very quickly becomes terrified of her as he, as he confesses later. And interprets everything that she does, which is evidence of her own distress at being pulled over, he interprets as being dangerous, as evidence of her potential um, you know, maliciousness or pathology or, and my point is you can't, making sense of a stranger is so hard that you cannot have a policing strategy that depends for its successful execution on requiring police officers to read a stranger in 30 seconds. That's just madness. That is an open invitation to having all kinds of, of, uh, of social pathology between police officers and the people they stop, who, by the way, happen overwhelmingly to be people of color, mm -hmm. right? This is, for us to be doing this as, a, as, an, as an order of business in policing in 2019 is, is just bananas. One of the things I've noticed, I mean, I, I tried to be fair in this, and you know, I worked with Frontline on a documentary about policing in Newark, um, which just coincidentally was also the other place that Kelling looked at um, in his, his research on crime. But one of the things I found there, and in other things that I've written about, and I think it relates to this question, is not only the inscrutability of other people's motives, but it, particularly in policing, a really prominent sense of confidence in their ability to read people, yeah. um, even if it's misplaced. Uh, in one instance, it was a, a cop who uh, frisked a 10 or 11 year old kid suspecting him of having drugs uh, and I was there observing this and you know the kid had nothing on him and he said he must have thrown it in the bushes before I got there. But there was never any calculation that maybe this person was innocent and that your instincts yeah. were wrong. Yeah. So I thought that like the Insinia situation combined a lot of those worst instincts which is not only the inscrutability but, but a culture which encourages people to pride themselves or to have a great deal of faith in their cop instinct. Yeah, so With there's a huge literature in psychology on uh, surveys of law enforcement people around the world um, 
uh, asking them about their, uh, how they know whether someone is being deceitful, hiding something, guilty. And cops have, all the surveys say the same thing, which is that police officers have an exceedingly clear idea about what they believe are signs of mm -hmm. guilt and um, deception. And that those ideas are um, completely without foundation. They're like ludicrous. The number of cops who, for example, believe that when someone averts their eyes um, and uh, smiles and uh, moves their hands like this, that that's a reliable indicator of guilt is unbelievable. It's off the charts. In fact, there is nothing. In fact, the, the most fun, it's in a footnote in this book. Um, there's a guy, who, criminologist, who did this exhaustive study of cops, mm -hmm. uh, television show cops, because cops is one of the great natural experiments in policing. It's 25 years of data on the way in which... Uh, you mean cops the show? The show. Yeah. Okay. Think about it. Every show involves a cop talking to someone who is typically a young man who is either white, black, or Hispanic. And over the course of the show, we learn whether that young man is innocent or guilty. Mm -hmm. right? So what we have is an incredible database of how black and white and Hispanic young men behave right, in the presence of either guilt or innocence. Mm -hmm. And what you discover is that the cops' intuitions about what guilt looks like are confirmed in white people, but contradicted in black people. So mm. cops think that if you go like this, look away, and you kind of shuffle your feet and move your hands, you're guilty. White people, young white guys, when they do that, they're guilty. Young black men, when they do that, they're innocent. Now, mm. right there, you have a problem, mm -hmm. right? That they have this idea which works on their own kind, because many mm -hmm. of these cops are themselves white, mm -hmm. doesn't work on the, and Hispanics are their own separate problem. And then he runs in this study, which is this such an extraordinary study, he runs through like 20 different behavioral cues and shows that there are such vast differences, not just across races, but within races, that any idea that the cop has is only gonna cause them to make mm. radical mistakes. Mm. Why this study of cops hasn't like received more Attention, I don't know. I mean, um, the idea of taking, of using cops as a kind of social science database is so, by the way, fantastic. It's like a job for like a body language translator. Yeah, yeah, like, no, no, no. I don't know um, whether the creators of cops know that they've spawned a whole literature. <laughs> Probably not. Literature. So this is a, this is a really good question. Um, and especially because uh, I was raised in New York mm -hmm. in the 1970s. Um, 1970s and 80s, which means that I'm an intensely skeptical person, especially in, when interacting with strangers. Yeah. You know, my default is raised eyebrow. Yeah. Um, and the question is, do you generally trust strangers or do you find yourself with your guard up? Do I trust? Well, I, I actually, I am, very, I am quite trusting mm -hmm. because I, unlike you, I grew up in rural Southern Ontario, mm -hmm. which is about as far from. That's kind of it's the part of the description of having lived there. It's like required of you, isn't it? Yeah, you, you, yeah. If you grew up in Queens, I grew up in the Queens is here. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the continuum. I'm on the other. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that anyone ever told me a lie until I, you know, went to college. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we had the bad people at my high school were people who smoked cigarettes. Literally, wow. That was considered, that was, you know, when you define, so deviancy, if you think about this, when you're a teenager, deviancy is simply doing the thing that most other kids 
don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. So in your high school, you know, in an in a, in a urban high school in America, wherever, in some deviancy is like way over here because the norm is to be, you know, tough or whatever. You, in order to be deviant, you got to go like way off. But it, poss possibly. You don't think so? No, no. I th what I think is interesting about that is that when I reflect back on it, there wasn't, our, what we thought of deviancy was not really, there was maybe more braggadocio or whatever associated, but it wasn't. Genuine deviancy. It really wasn't. Yeah. Well, even then, I mean, I'm sure if you mm -hmm. had imported mm -hmm. a random sample of students from my high school <laughs> to a New York City high school in the 1970s and 80s. It's like, God, these kids are wholesome. They would have had a, no, these guys, mine would have had, they would have had a stroke within like 24 hours. <laughs> there, we did, I didn't know a single, um, there was not a single unwed mother mm -hmm. in my high school. Um, there was no drug use that I had, I didn't, the idea that you would take drugs was something that was completely unknown. Mm -hmm. It was literally about smoking cigarettes and the school, I think the people running the school were aware of just how good they had it. So they went out of their way to make smoking cigarettes seem like it was just like the most unbelievable violation of every, you know. I don't know, like, I feel like in a minute we can launch a political campaign going, taking people back to that time. You know, it was um, pretty magical. So, <laughs> I can tell you the most deviant thing I did is a, so I was anxious. Oh Lord, here we go. I was, this, is, this is the part that like when people write about this event, it will only be quoting what you say right now. Sure. I realize I've never told this story. I just, I just, it just popped into my head. That, so I was very anxious as I had two Confederates when I was uh, in high school and we were very anxious to be rebellious. But all of the conventional avenues of rebellion had been closed off in our, so it was a really had to sit and think about what is the best way for us to. So we had a, an, a tradition in our school called the Snow Queen, which was mm -hmm. like, a, like a, our school's, you know, Miss America pageant mm -hmm. kind of thing. And someone would be crowned Snow Queen. So on the, on the day, so all the school would gather mm -hmm. and they would declare the winner of Snow Queen and the Snow Queen would come up to the stage and she would sit in a chair and someone would put the crown on her head. Mm -hmm. right? it's the biggest deal of the year. So when the crown was put on the head of the Snow Queen, we jumped up on stage with a huge banner, which was so large that it obscured the Snow Queen. Mm -hmm. And the banner said, this is the height of deviancy for me. <laughs> the banner said, Snow Queen today, housewife tomorrow. Oh God. Oh. Oh my God. We we staked out the hard feminist position and that put us like beyond the pale. That, that was like, people could not believe what we had just done. So, the image of, image of young Malcolm in the dean's office. Like, no, no, they, explain I didn't even your get, behavior, young man. They didn't man. even call me on it. They were like so just, just, I mean, they were so reeling from what this meant that they didn't even, they couldn't process it. Uh. That did so not happen at your high school. Since we're confessing, that did not, you guys, that did not happen. But there's since, no snow queen in there's no snow in Queens. There's no and it, and <laughs> just in a nomenclature there should be. Yeah, but that's right. That's right. I will confess. <laughs> snow is very different meaning in Canada no, right. and, than it does in Queens in the 1970s. So 
I will confess the, the most deviant thing I did in high school. Uh, no, the statute of limitations is not up here. <laughs> Come on. Um, I told my so story. On, I can't believe you're... The, uh, you, what is your opinion of the... <laughs> <laughs> what is your opinion of the college entrance lies? The college... Oh, the, oh you mean the school yes, scandal? Yes, the Laurie Laughlin. Uh, first and, of all, yeah. my first... The first and obvious reaction to it all is this guy Singer who's like cheating on the thing, you know, doing all the, he's the ringleader. He's charging 15 grand. If you're gonna, I mean, these are people, you're, you have desperate parents with millions of dollars who are prepared to shell out $75,000 to send their kids to mediocre schools. And you, you only charge 15K? What is the matter with this guy? I wanna shake him. You're risking, like a jail sentence, mm -hmm. and you're and all of this, and you're doing it for 15 grand. Mm -hmm. You're cheating on an LSAT for 15. Like, that's how I can't get past that. <laughs> what kind of role model is he? Is he? <laughs> it's very funny. It's like the old. Is it Jimmy Cagney movie? Never steal anything small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, some people are able to detect lies, not blatant, um, when speaking to strangers. How are they able to do this, and uh, why, why are they able to do what most people can't? So there is a really interesting literature on what are called super detectors. And they are, first of all, very, 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 very rare. Mm. And, but there are people who, like in, that, in a test where, you know, that I described, they're one in every whatever. 10,000 people are gonna get 80% right. And the only thing I ever heard about those, that kind of person was someone who had done a study on them and said the th striking thing they had in common was there were an extraordinary number of children of alcoholics. Mm. Because, and it was explained, it was really Someone's interesting explanation. like an approval with that. Which is that, what is an alcoholic? An, al alcohol, an alcoholic is someone whose actions and presentation are discrepant. Mm -hmm. Right. So as a child, you are constantly uh, disentangling the way that your parent um, looks and the way that they, the, the, the facial expressions and demeanor and, the, and the, the way they really feel, the way they're going to behave towards you. And so that is, turns out to be, I mean, you suffer terribly, but the one um, consequence of that mm -hmm. is that you get really good at understanding people's sort of hidden motives, right? Because the mistake the rest of us make is that we assume that these two things are congruent. I assume that if you're, gonna, if you're smiling at me, you must be friendly towards me. But a child who grows up in a profoundly dysfunctional home does not make that assumption. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes you realize that being a super detector carries a terrible cost. It's not, it is not something we would wish on anyone. It meant, but it's also interesting the extent to which uh, our backgrounds shape us or, or Culping skills that you cultivate in one arena wind up uh, that being adaptive in one way that translate into completely other um, aspects of your life that people might not even be mindful of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the other question I have, which I think is really interesting, is what kind of liar is Jeffrey Epstein? What kind of liar is Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, well, again, I get the sense from reading about Jeffrey Epstein that he also didn't take enormous mm -hmm. pains to hide what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Right? 
I mean, it seems to me that's more a case of people around him excusing his behavior. Mm -hmm. Like I had a, a conversation with somebody who had known Harvey Weinstein for many, many years. And when the Weinstein story broke, this person who was sort of a Hollywood person said, oh yeah, I remember uh, years ago at, at Sundance seeing Harvey run, on, run down the hall after a woman who'd come out of his hotel room. Mm. And he said it like, oh, we all knew Harvey was like that. Mm -hmm. But it didn't occur to him to do anything about it or say anything about it. And I suspect that Epstein's particular... So Weinstein wasn't lying about this. It was like his brother knew about it. His, everyone who worked for him knew about it. He didn't take great pains to hide it. Um, you know, is, is Epstein take, was Epstein taking... He had somebody walking around the streets of Manhattan right. um, uh, finding young women for him. I mean, so I, again, it's a, this is, seems to be this separate problem, which is these people who do things in plain sight and we just choose not to... Um, the, the rest of society chooses not to get particularly exercised by it. Isn't, I mean, isn't, isn't the term for that cowardice? On the part of the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, we can be confronted with things that are egregious. Yeah. And the way in which we, I guess there's probably a more um, genteel way of framing it and saying, you know, avoidance or... Uh, you know, whatever the kind of psychological term for it might be, but isn't it just cowardice that we yeah. see people who do things that we know are wrong, but we lack um, the fortitude to confront them and, and intervene? Well, the, you know, the, 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 the famous study on this is the, what was called the bystander effect study, mm -hmm. which argued that, remember in the case, the, the fame has been written about 17 different times, 17 different ways, but the Kitty Genovese case in right. Queens. Mm -hmm. um, and the question is, why didn't people call the cops? And there, like I said, there are 10 explanations. But one of the early famous ones was that when you witness something and you're part of a group, you assume that someone else is gonna do the calling. So you're like, well, I don't know why I have to do it. We all saw it. Whereas if you witness something and it's just you, you feel compelled to act. So the I talk about the case of the Stanford rape case in mm -hmm. my book. And what's interesting about that case is that the two, these two graduate students come upon Brock Turner, you know, on the ground with an unconscious um, Emily Doe, and immediately they rush in and break it up. Um, and it's because there's no one else but them, right? They're like, oh, it's like... They don't even think twice about it. They immediately charge in there. They see an unconscious woman and a guy you know, thrusting upon her, and they're like, we have no choice. If we don't do it, nobody will. But with, with, someone like, with something like Epstein, there's literally dozens and dozens of people who are aware of his actions, and none of them feels particularly compelled to be the first to raise their hand and say this is wrong. Hmm. I, know, I think um, there's also, like, I think, correlations in terms of um, the ability, I mean, just the way that the, the case played out the ability of people of particular socioeconomic backgrounds and certainly of uh, particular racial backgrounds that we're inclined to default to truth for. Mm -hmm. And so our, our, our idea of what is truthful, what's honest, uh, what seems to be authentic is mediated by this in the same ways. If Bernie Madoff was a brother saying, look, I can't explain it to you, I'm just going to give you all of this money back, 
that scheme wouldn't have run the way that it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the same token, I think Brock Turner, was, was, it was an African-American man, that case is going to be adjudicated differently. Yeah. So I think some part of this is also about our social hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do, yeah, I do, I do think these things are, um, that's the kind of, um, but that explains why the task of turning, to go back to our conversation about um, Bill Cosby, it explains why the task of turning these things around takes so long. I mean, that's always what, to me, in any number of these instances, what is so fascinating and disturbing, which is that you can't, it isn't just the case that the first time someone stands up and says, Bill Cosby, put something in my drink, Mm -hmm. we all snap to attention. It's like, it's years and years and years and years of it. I mean, I mentioned Gloria Allred before. Gloria Allred was was representing these people way, 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 way back then, and literally nothing. I mean, there's a, there's a moment in, I think, I may be getting the date wrong, but Cosby gets an award at Lincoln Center in like 2009, 2010, mm-hmm. something in there. Everyone who is anyone in the world of comedy shows up and gives the most heartfelt, you know, this guy's my idol. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is at a time when those... Ex- allegations are already out there, right? And it takes Hannibal Buress to, right. to stand up and just kind of like, um, and that thing took on a life of its own for the kind of tide to turn. So it's, I mean, it really is a, this is not something that's simple. And I think it ought to, um, uh, I mean, that's sort of what I'm trying to get it in the book is to, is to, is to say that you can't have a kind of um, uh, knee-jerk response when things take really slow and just say they take slow because people are, are evil or blind or whatever those things. No, it takes a long time because, you know, these are our reactions, are functions of social structures and attitudes that have been built over a long period of time. And it takes a while to turn the ship around. Mm-hmm. So I have a statement, which you all are not going to like, but I'm, unfortunately is very true. Um, Books are available for sale, but Malcolm will not be signing. Um, books are already signed. They're already signed. Yeah. Silence. <laughs> Silence. Sorry. Um, but I do have one last question, which is, I think, kind of open-ended, and uh, maybe it's a kind of Rorschach question to end on, which is, isn't everyone a stranger? How well do we really know anyone? Well. Uh, I mean, I think... If you want to end on an uplifting note, there you are. (laughs) I'm always reminded, my favorite, one of my favorite psychological studies ever was, it's a famous study in psychology, which is that, um, I think it was done in the 30s, or the 40s. So they go to a large group of parents, and they ask the parents to fill out a psychological questionnaire on their children. Mm -hmm. Describe the, they're all school-age children. Describe the personality of your child across of 25 different dimensions. Then they go to the children, children's teachers, and they have the teachers fill out the exact same questionnaire, right? And the question is, how close are these two questionnaires? And the answer is, not even remotely close. <laughs> there is nothing in common. So the child that the teacher sees and the child the parent sees are completely different. Why? Because the way we behave is a function of the context we're in and the people we're interacting with. So can you ever know someone you can know the way the person behaves around you, mm-hmm. but you can't know the way the person behaves when you're not in the room. Mm-hmm. 
right? Well, that's why they have surveillance now. You know? That's why we had surveillance. <laughs> it's like these, it's a boom industry in it. But that's why we're always, you know, the classic line whenever they catch the serial killer mm -hmm. and they interview the neighbor and the neighbor always says... He was so quiet. He seems so quiet. Right. Right? Well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, and that is that when the serial killer is around his neighbors, he's not doing his serial killing. <laughs> right? Like, that's part of the... Kind of the bar for entry into the world of serial killing is that you understand the fundamental fact that you want to keep this activity from your neighbors. Exactly. And somehow this escapes us. We expect the neighbor, we're like, oh my God, I don't know why, you know, Jackie Smith next door didn't see it. How could she not see it? She's living next door to the guy. Well, right. Yeah. That's the point. That is kind of the point, right? <laughs> and what's even amazing is that in the serial killer cases, you can even get real super close to the man. Mm -hmm. I mean, Half the time, the wives sometimes don't even know mm -hmm. um, what's going on. Um, and I don't think, you know, go back to, to uh, Larry Nasser. I mean, there are the, the people's, the, the, I have a, a quote in the um, uh, book. There was a, uh, uh, from some of the parents of the kids who were abused by him. Mm. And the most, one that always just, um, is unbelievable, but true, is a mother who takes her child to be treated by Nasser, and she's in the room with Nasser, and she observes that Nasser has an erection as he is treating her daughter. And this woman is herself a medical doctor. So she's, an un she's a very sophisticated person, a caring mother who is there to, and she sees this, and she, it doesn't, she doesn't, she's like, that's weird. Her reaction is, oh, that's weird. That must be embarrassing for him. And she doesn't make any connection between this observed behavior and what is happening with her daughter. And that makes you think, so she doesn't, she, you know, Nasser is a known quantity to her. She has taken her daughter to be treated by him on many occasions. Anyone who's in the gymnastics world of, of um, around Penn State knew Larry Nasser, but they didn't really know him. Mm -hmm. and Michigan State, yeah. Michigan State, right. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't really know him. Um, and, that, you know, partly because we have powerful um, uh, mechanisms of denial, partly because, you know, if you are a pedophile, you spend a lot of time trying to um, obscure your behavior from people, but partly because what we're talking about, like people have many, many different dimensions, and it takes, it took a very long time for some of those parents to come around to the idea that this man was, um, it took actually finding 37,000 images on his hard drive mm -hmm. for many of them to come around to the notion that he might be. Um, so that's when I, when I talk about how this is an insanely difficult task. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that um, it's interesting, especially in a period where uh, in the, the craft uh, profession that we both practice, you know, there is a kind of public skepticism of what we do, and there's a really, um, I think, fraught, I think, social relationship with the idea of truth right now. Uh, for the period we live in. And so uh, thank you for taking on this subject and, and it was a really interesting read. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.